Was I being blamed for something or, or blessed? Isn't this the strangest thing in the world? The bright, shiny lights in the sky can make you think about who you are as a person. How is that true? There's something coming. And it's going to affect every person on the planet. Welcome back. I am here with John Yost, who is the director of Alien Abduction Answers. Now, if you have not watched the documentary, I highly recommend it because we're just going to dive right in. You have to have watched it to, to see this. So it's an excellent documentary. So please, please, please go out and buy it immediately and watch. John, welcome. Thank you very much, John. As I said before, I really appreciate you and, and to all of your viewers. Thank you. Yeah, and I appreciate you taking your very busy schedule and working me in. So let's get started with one of the questions that I think comes out of your documentary, which is based on an abduction experience that you had as a child in the Pittsburgh area. One of the main questions I had is who or what were these entities that you interacted with? Yeah. That goes to a point about uh, the difference between my documentary and most others. Most others are created by people who are very, very smart, and they have a lot of uh, study in this particular subject, whereas I have none. But the difference between us is, is that I'm literally an experiencer. I've gone through this, uh, not only physically, but emotionally and psychically. And it was visceral to me and is visceral to me. So what I do is I bring the viewer into the experience with me. Most other documentaries are third-person narratives where you kind of watch the action at arm's length. In my film, literally, you're with me from the very first moment. You're riding on my shoulder or in my pocket, and, and you live through this fear, through this terror, and the film kind of shepherds you through that. Making the film was a catharsis for me, and it brought me a, a sense of peace. And what I'm hoping is that viewers will also gain that sense of peace, even if they just have a tertiary interest in the subject. It can maybe settle a few things for them, some questions that they might not feel comfortable asking in polite company. And for those of us who have lived through this, it might be a, a salve to their raw nerves. Having said that, preamble, in the film, we've done our very, very best to replicate what I experienced. And I was very emotional when we were shooting it. But as you know, originally, to my seven-year-old eyes, I interpreted what I saw in that hallway as a Japanese television character that I had seen a hundred right. times on TV, this, this Ultraman. An Ultraman in the, in the TV shows, he was this giant metallic-looking guy with bulbous eyes, and he, he fought the bad guys. And so I'm a little boy, and of course, I loved Ultraman. You know, he was a good guy. So I was not afraid. I was not afraid. And we got very, very close, uh, nose to nose, actually. And then I felt something, and I've used this analogy before, for anybody who's been on a beach, and you're standing on the beach, and the water rolls in over your ankles, and it starts to slide the sand out from underneath your feet. You, you, you feel dislodged. You feel off balance. And I did. 
I started to fall back and I was terrified. I was terrified. And I lashed out like a drowning man, you know, and literally laid hands on this entity, which was right in front of me. There's this tremendous flash of light. And I, I felt like I was moving. I, I couldn't tell all these colors, this panorama of colors, blue and green and red and yellow. They were just speeding past me. I felt like maybe I was on a carousel that was out of control or maybe like a bullet train and you couldn't make out the landscape. And then when I came to my senses, we were back in that hallway, but we had been interchanged. Our, our positions were different. Well, this was really the crux and why I made the film. I could tell you my entire life what had happened, down to the detail. And I, I know it sounds asinine. I, I, I know. But sometimes the things that are right in front of us are the things that elude us the most. Mm -hmm. I could not tell you what happened during that small section. I couldn't tell you if I left, if I was there, how I had changed places with this entity. I could not tell you. Yeah, you're and, literally on the opposite side of him, right? Yes, or, yeah. yes, yes. I, originally, I was in a, a bathroom, and this entity was in the doorway with its back to this hallway. When I kind of come back from this, you know, dervish, I, I, I am, in fact, in the hallway, and he is, I say he, I don't know that, but right. he is in the bathroom. Anyway, so I couldn't tell what that was. And so I had gone through a long process of talking to a bunch of people, which led me to interviewing a bunch of people, which led me to finally having the bravery to, to share with them what I had recalled. And somebody at some point pointed out that there was a missing piece to my story. And I thought, what an idiot I am. How could I know this my entire life and just miss this huge chasm in the middle of my story? And that bothered me. I had started to gain some ground emotionally and be able to deal with this a little bit better. But now that, that ached and it itched at the back of my mind. It was something there, something and I just had to know. In fact, in the promo for the film, you hear me say, okay, if I had to live with the fear, that would be all right. I just needed to know. And really what happens with people in the same situation is your desire to know outgrows your terror and you need to know so there's a long intro but what had happened was in the film i had gone through the regression with a therapist who was a practitioner in quantum healing hypnotherapy and for That's, people who uh, don't is it deborah deborah shakti it's deb's shakti and I mean, yeah, I, I've said this before. She really is a, a guardian angel. I, I, I consider her my guardian angel today. She's a person you probably have heard this term before, Christ consciousness. And all it means is it's just somebody who is very, very loving, very giving, very, you know, service to others. This is a person who talks that talk and walks that walk. And also, there's, I'm not a misogynist at all. I was raised in a family full of women. But I probably was a little arrogant. I'm not, I'm not proud of this, but you know, I'm about 6'3 and 270. I'm not a small person. And this lady is an elf. I mean, she's a tiny, <laughs> tiny little person. And she said, I'm going to help you with this. And, and I kind of guffawed about, okay, little lady, that sort of thing. You know, I'm really a 
an asinine thing to say. But she said to me, it was really interesting. She said, you know, John, I'm not really not going to do anything. All I'm going to do is I'm going to show you how to relax. And all you're going to do is just relax. And you're going to relax enough that you can walk down that hallway that you constructed. And you can open up that locked door that only you know the combination to. And you're going to see a filing cabinet. You're going to open that up. And all you're going to do is see and report. You're going to see and report. So I had my doubts. I was already dealing with a, a whole panorama of emotions. and But I was so desperate to find out that I was willing. I was willing. And we had done a couple of practice exercises just to see if I could relax enough and, you know, take you to your favorite Christmas, that sort of thing. And I, and I was completely, I have to tell you something, Sean, I was gobsmacked. I could not believe the textures, the vibrant colors of those things. And they were just beautiful. And I remember them clear as day. And so I had this really great feeling about actually having this regression about this event. And I think that was really, in her wisdom, the point, you know, that I that she wanted me to overcome. I was already very protective, and so I had to kind of drop my defensiveness to allow this to happen and the uh, process to go on. And, and she took great umbrage at being filmed. She, in fact, uh, put up a fight. She said, listen, John, this is not a carnival. We're doing serious work here, and I take my role here as the facilitator and for you she said this is you know we're dealing with your psyche we're dealing with your emotions we're dealing with your life this is important to you there's no game and i assured her that what i wanted to do was i saw this as the focus of a film that would help people i had realized through this whole ordeal that I wasn't isolated. I felt isolated. And most people who encounter these things do feel isolated. But the truth is, my research is, it says in the film, there are hundreds of thousands, millions of people, including, mm -hmm. you know, according to the Roper panel, that was like 6.2 million. That was in the States. I think what we're going to find out is it's not an isolated thing. What it is, is it's almost universal. What we have done as a species is ignored it. We've occluded our view or our sense of it. And it, what it is, is it's a blister. It's a protective, you know, surrounding us because this encounter will destroy your ego. And that's the thing that we protect the most. So what we had to do was set up remote cameras and people couldn't be in the room. They couldn't be in the building. They had to be, you know, in other places. And, and the regression took about six and a half hours. And when the film, I think maybe, maybe 10, 15 minutes of it is yeah, in it's very film. short. Yeah. There's a lot in there. But what happened was I was not taken by Ultraman. <laughs> I can assure <laughs> you he had nothing to do with it. And I mean, that's a whole other question that we explore. You know, this screen memory, was this something that was generated by my seven-year-old mind to protect me from that trauma? Or did or they? Was, yeah. Was it something projected into my mind as a salve to allow the experience? I have to tell you something, though. In retrospect, I think it was generated by them. And the reason is, is when I started to explore the encounter, 
this entity was not in any way, shape, or form an Ultraman. It was more insectoid. And as I said, you know, our, we work our craft and, and then we, we really replicated it as best we could. It was more of an ant-like being. It was bipedal, as best I could tell. And it had an elongated head, very large eyes, and it had very interesting antennae. There was a set that came out of its forehead like this. And there was a set that came out of its cheeks like this. Mm. And the appendages were not like an exoskeleton. They almost looked like branches. I, I think I described it almost like deer antlers that had been truncated. But the really fascinating thing about those was is that they had external villi on them, protrusion, almost like a fur, if you will. And these were tools of control. I could feel some sort of coercive power, some sort of coercive energy coming through those to make me docile, to make me go with this entity. And that was, oh man, devastating, freaking devastating. To feel powerless is something that either people have never felt or have buried so deeply within their psyche, they don't want to ever deal with it. And that's what happened to me. I realized at that moment that this was not the first time I had been taken. This had been a series of these events, and I was fighting it. And I thought to myself, you son of a, you're not taking me again. I don't want to go. And I was fighting for my life. You know, I, I know that sounds melodramatic, but I mean, in my seven-year-old mind, yeah. I mean, this is, you know, the epic battle. I'm going to kill this thing. Nowhere you take, and it took me. I don't know the physics of it. I don't know the, the energy source. But somehow I was transported from that hallway. People ask me if I've been to a ship. I have no idea. But I was not taken to a ship at that time. I was taken to some place that was subterranean. It felt cavernous. It was moist. I could feel the humidity in the air. There were stalagmites, stalactites. And I could see at the very, very apex of this thing, I don't want to say it's a structure because it seemed completely natural to me. There was this gaping hole at the very, very top. And it was very remote. And even that area was not perfectly circular. It was irregular, right? And I could see a light above, but it was diffused. It wasn't directly in. And, and when I say cavernous, Sean, I mean, the best way I can try to describe it to somebody is this. You know, most people have been to a stadium in their lifetime, okay? If you can imagine going to a stadium that's completely empty and being led out to the middle of the field or the court, and then all the lights shut off and you're all alone. Silence is loud. Mm -hmm. And that kind of space is oppressive. You know, you would think that you'd feel completely free in that. No, it's mm -hmm. the exact antipathy of that. It is oppressive. 
I know a lot of people have described their encounters like they were on a table and they're having exam. That's not what happened to me at all. I was somehow, I don't recall that I was in a chair or anything like that, but I was kind of suspended reclining, almost like a, a lazy boy, if you will. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't recall anything underneath me. Like you were floating. And, yes, yes, mm. yes. And I was in front of these three I mean, gigantic screens. They were fantastically large. They were from the ground. And they had to be, I don't know, 30, 50 feet in the air. They were ginormous. And I was surrounded by these other entities. Now, people ask me about gray. I don't know anything about gray. I don't know anything about anything. I can only tell you what happened to me. but. These entities were cloaked. They had some sort of clothing. They resembled greys in that they had large eyes and they had maybe a darkish tint to their skin, but it could have been like a dark brown, actually. And their heads were, I remember saying as a little boy, they were horses. And I don't mean they looked like horses. What I mean is their faces were elongated. Okay. Mm. But they had the big almond eye type thing, and they were bipedal as well. It was completely silent in that space. And I was petrified. I was angry. I wanted my mom. I wanted my dad. And, excuse me. (laughs) And there was communication going on, but it was nonverbal i could feel uh, positive energy if you will encouragement i could feel negative energy as i tried to resist i could feel approval i could feel frustration I, i could feel these types of things and once again i'm seven years old so i'm not processing this intellectually it's completely visceral to me i'm an emotional crazy person and this is all happening around me i can only tell you that from retrospect and after going through this process that i could detect those things and these screens they contained pictures they were montages and groups and collections of of, of images Right. And these images were thousands and thousands and thousands of these images. And they were interesting too. I remember as a teenager, you'd walk through a mall, and I don't know what it's called, but you used to be able to see the photograph. There would be lithographs of, say, Abraham Lincoln. And Abraham Lincoln was made of a thousand pictures of Abraham Lincoln in different things, but they all kind of made up his face. And I always thought that was fascinating. But that's what this thing kind of was, except that the big picture was not a picture at all. It was just this collage of all these images. And they were all kinds of images. It wasn't like devastation or, you know, it wasn't that or the end of the earth. No, they were just androgynous photos or pictures or stars or planets or waterfalls or whatever. And they were vibrant colors, very, very vibrant colors. And they were moving extremely fast. And I remember, I recall something humorous about this. You know, I'm seven years old, right? So imagine you're seven years old and you're learning cursive handwriting. 
right? And which of they course, don't teach anymore, by the way. Which they don't, which they don't. And mm-hmm. I'm a kid and I'm learning this. And of course, I grew up in America and I speak English. And so we write our language left to right. Well, these images were moving right to left. And I was pissed off. I remember thinking as this little kid, I'm so angry and so frustrated and so scared and everything else. And I went, and on top of it all, they're doing it wrong. You know, I was a pain in the ass even then. (laughs) And I was so mad at them. I'm like, they're doing it wrong. And it, it occurred to me, I didn't know this at the time, but only in retrospect with the help of Debs and understanding what had happened, the images themselves were not the information. The information was within the lines that separated all the images. They were within the lines, within the corners, within those vertices. That information was coming out. I've heard people use this. I don't know anything about this. People talk about downloads and stuff like this. But it was like a direct input into my mind. Now, as an old guy... (laughs) I've had time to kind of chew on this information. And I wondered about this, you know, I've studied a little bit about the mind, how we're bifurcated. You know, we have a conscious mind and we have a subconscious mind. And our conscious mind kind of grows into this thing where, you know, we say no. You know, we don't allow us. You know, we okay, we have discipline. We have to go to work. I don't want to daydream. I got to do this. I got to do this report. You know, it just kind of is like a guard outside your subconscious. But your subconscious can't help but take in the information. Like right now, I'm I'm speaking to you, but I can hear a very faint hum in my earbuds. Now, I could focus on that. Like right now, I could hear someone outside shutting a car door. But in normal conversation, I'm so focused on our conversation that I would never, ever detect it. But my subconscious is picking up millions of bits of information. So I thought to myself... And once again, I don't know, but this is my posit, is that these guys knew exactly what they were doing. They kept my conscious mind so busy and fixated on these pictures that he was over here fighting these battles, and that information was going directly into my subconscious. Not to pat myself on the back, but I thought, what a genius, genius thing if that was the case. I don't know that's the truth. I, I could be just self-aggrandizing, whatever, and it could all be BS. But I'm just saying that's interesting to me now as mm-hmm. an adult. And there was this information that was coming in. And off air, you and I were talking about communication and and how language is a clunky conduit. I think about this, you know, you and I are close in age, but if you went back like a hundred years ago and you said, that woman is bad. Well, that person in that three-piece suit walking down with a walking stick and a top hat would say, well, that obviously, she's a miscreant. You know, she's a cretin and, and she is probably some criminal. Okay, but if you went to the 70s and said, that woman is bad, that means an entirely different thing. Okay, right. but the words haven't changed. Not even the syntax has changed. It's it's literally the same exact word, but it means something completely different. And that, that's why I say language is a, a, a perfect conduit of information. And I think that's why, from what I have heard and what I understand from other people, that these entities communicate telepathically because images, colors, sounds emotion are universal 
everybody understands what fear is. Everybody understands what love is. Everybody understands what blue is. They might have a different word for blue. They might have a different word for love. But the emotion is pure. The information is pure. And I think this is part and parcel of what I'm trying to untie in my experience. Anyway, so these emotions and, and colors and, and, and feelings and, and just everything, it's just bombarding me. And then at some point, the session was over and I was communicated with the other entities. I, I refer to the ant being as their bully. And it's, to me, I kind of smile a little bit because it's the parlance of a seven-year-old kid. You know, I, he was the bully who dragged me here. He was the bully. And at the conclusion, I was transported by that same light, energy, whatever. And I was back in that hallway in my parents' home on the second floor. But I was not in the exact same place. I was in the hallway, as, as I mentioned before, and as in the film is depicted. And I, to me, at that point, I'm in still in this anger mode, frustrated, wanting to defend myself, fight of my life. And I'm throwing fists at this thing. And as I do, he raises his right hand and touches me on the shoulder. And there's this tremendous flash of light. I feel this energy hit me in the chest. It's like, once again, standing in the middle of the ocean or, or on the beach there and being hit in the chest by a wave. And it, as you know, it'll knock you right down to the ground. And that's what happened to me. And I got thrown back. And there was a set of hardwood stairs behind me. And I fell ugly. I mean, it wasn't orchestrated. I mean, I'm banging off walls and flipping up and down. And I, I really got hurt, really, really got hurt and landed in a heap at the bottom of the stairs. And my parents, as you know, their bedroom was on the first floor. And so they came running around, you know, what the hell is this commotion and what's going on? And, and I say, Ultraman's upstairs, whatever my father hears. Intruder, right. Intruder, yeah. You know, and he runs upstairs. Anyway, so I, I want to tell you this, though. People ask me, who, 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 who are they? Who are they? And I can't speak for everybody else. I have a sense that there are several different agencies or origins of this phenomena that people are experiencing. We can talk about that. But right. for me, I got the distinct feeling that these intelligences that I was dealing with were that was their natural habitat that it was an underground sort of dwelling i don't know if it was on earth or somewhere else an asteroid i don't know and i don't pretend to know uh, not in the secret space force or anything like i i'm not right. trying to mock them but what i'm trying to say is right. i would never tell you something that i i'm speculating i can just tell you what i know and uh, i never felt more helpless in my life so when you looked up into the open air in that cavern, was it day or night? It was dark out there, but I could see it. Like I could see a diffused light. If you put a gun to my head, I would tell you it was maybe I was near a mall and I had fallen down a well, you know, and so the mall is uh, about a, you know, like you could see the light pour in. It was dark everywhere else, but it wasn't a direct light into it. It was so dark. it was so like I, yeah. it was like it was like you could describe it potentially as like light pollution. 
Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's a, that's a good phrase. Yes, sir. Okay. And then in terms of the experience, did it feel physical or was it non-material in a way? hundred percent, hundred percent. I've heard of people talking about, you know, light body or being taken through walls. No, 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 no. I was there. I was there. I could feel it. I could taste the moisture in the air. I could feel the moisture around me, the coolness of the air as it moved around me. It was 100% physical. And then, of course, the aftermath. Not only was I lying at the foot of these stairs, completely bruised and cut up, but I also, to this moment, I bear the mark that I had. On your shoulder, on, On my left shoulder, yes, sir. Now, in the region where you grew up, this happened, I'm assuming, just kind of near Pittsburgh, which is very close to the Allegheny well, Mountains. Yes, sir. Uh, there's the Chestnut Ridge, whereas, mm. you know, whether the Kecksburg sightings, Kecksburg's up along that. Yes, sir. It's often considered the, the quote-unquote twilight zone of uh, Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. So. Are there, at least where you grew up, are there any areas where there's caverns and things like that near the Allegheny Mountains? The, again, which are 480 million years old, which is another, like they're very old. I think yeah. the oldest mountain, one of the oldest, if not the oldest mountain range in the world. Yeah, there's a famous park called Laurel Caverns, and they are not that far away, you know, about an hour, hour and a half. And to my knowledge, there are only a couple ways into it, but I don't think there's any kind of direct, I think you'd have to walk into them. We literally shot those recreations inside those caverns. Mm-hmm. I, I will tell you something, something well, interesting and terrifying at the same time. It's not that I recognize those caverns and we did it for the reality and to make the experience visceral for the viewer, but I could only be in there for a few minutes. I, I, I couldn't take it. I, I had to leave and I directed remotely from outside. And it was a real inconvenience for the film crew, as you can imagine. But uh, thank God that they're all very skilled and talented people from Rhino Pictures. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I'm speculating. I know you're not speculating, but this feels like whatever entities took you, they were likely located nearby in the cave complex now whether or not that's where they've always lived your gut seems to indicate or you you felt that way now there's in terms of just the lore like like it's the united states right there's a hopi legend about the ants people someone about about that yeah a race of uh beings that helped protect humanity when there was a you know nat- natural disaster that lived underground etc but that doesn't presuppose it could have been you know a local haunt or base of someone off world and then it does also doesn't presuppose it could be some extra dimensional mm-hmm. experience right mm-hmm. i mean maybe it's in the cave but it's in a different reality i don't know i'm just kind of throwing these things out there in this experience, how, as you look back on it, have you been able to make sense of the why? Mm. Mm. You know, um, once again, this is a lesson or an example of the difference of this documentary to others. You know, most of these documentaries that you see are fixated with the what 
and the where. And my film is more about the who and the why. I'm going to answer your question, and I don't mean to be elusive. It's not my intent. My intent is is to kind of flush it out and kind of answer it from a different direction. For those who have not seen the film, you kind of get the impression this is all my story. That's not true. I'm just kind of like the framework of the film. Actually, I was never supposed to be in the movie. It's an accident. There are several other people, and we follow their stories. These are all wonderful people, and they're really intelligent. They have multiple degrees, and worldwide practices, and people with their own companies, and mothers and fathers. These are salt-of-the-earth folks who had something totally incredible happen to them. And some of their experiences are very like mine, but the majority of them are very Very different. different, very, very different. And this begs the question, well, what are we dealing with, really? I have struggled with this. The who and the why are, I think, intermingled in that there is the same answer at the end of the equation. If you will, indulge me. I mentioned earlier about different agencies. We as a species, humans, today we're very insulated. You know, we wake up in the morning and we press a button and we have magic coffee. Pick up a little machine and we can talk across the world. We can see people from thousands of miles away. We get into our air-conditioned car and we go to our air-conditioned office. And we are completely isolated from the world around us because we've created a concrete and steel world that surrounds us and protects us from all the elements. But that was not always the case. Now, for the majority of people on Earth, this is the experience. There is a faction of people that are, in fact, in the world, meaning with the natural world, that deal with the natural world, that that are farmers and and, and woodsmen, this sort of thing. But since the beginning of spoken history, there have been talks about lights in the forest and elves and the, the good people and leprechauns and this sort of thing. Today, if you took one of our metrosexuals from the middle of New York and you set them out into the pine forests of the northern Pacific and they saw something, oh, must be an alien because that's the answer, right? Right. But in fact, it is something completely different that is being misdiagnosed or mislabeled as alien. But it seems like Gaia or Earth or the planet itself has a collective sort of intelligence or memory or energy pattern that interacts with other intelligences through magnetic force or whatever. I'm not smart enough to figure that out, but I'm just saying that there's that thing that has always occurred that we've kind of lost in our collective memories that people miss identify as something else, something quote-unquote alien. What it is, is completely other than us. That is my favorite word, other, because it is other than us. And then you have to really confront the truth that our governments, and I mean every government on the planet, has tech that we don't know about. I mean, nobody called you up yesterday and said, by the way, we have a new top secret thing, and I want to tell you because you're a nice fellow. 
No, no, they don't. It's, and that's an idiot's perspective that they would. And people get so upset about the government not sharing the information. And I often say, would you be upset at a shark that bit your arm? Sure, you'd be upset. But, but the truth is, the shark did exactly what the shark does. Right. Governments only do two things. They tax because they need money to do the next thing, which is control. And they control people and ideas and how fast you go and who you talk to and information. That's what they do. So they're doing it. So some of the things that we are experiencing as a species and have for many, many years is tech. It's our tech. And it's a very advanced tech to our minds. And we think, well, that's not of human origin. You don't know what the hell you're talking about. So there's that agency of what we're experiencing. Then we have to also confront this. We have an ever-expanding universe. We are looking at trillions and trillions and trillions of stars. The more mm -hmm. advanced tech that we have, we see more and more habitable planets thousands of light years away. Whereas we used to, pre-Copernicus, were the center of the universe. We are no longer. We are a speck on a speck on a speck in the middle of a big soupy universe. And we are on the outskirts. We're kind of like in the back waters of the Milky mm -hmm. Way. And we're 4 billion years old, the, the planet, okay? But the planets at the center of just our galaxy are 13 billion years old, okay? Mm -hmm. So take a look at the advancements that we've had in the last 150 years. Our great-grandparents would have never imagined men walking on the moon. It would have been Jules Verne. Even the physicists of the time said it would be impossible to get there because there's no way to take off to escape the gravity of the Earth. Okay. And by the way, they were following the science, but the science of the time, right. observations of the time, the tech of the time. But here we are, 2023. And you know what, good people? We send probes everywhere throughout our solar system. And you know what they do? I'll let you in on it. They take samples and they take pictures and they take measurements. And by God, if they found some animal running up and down the hills of Venus, they'd come down in Black Hawk helicopters, they'd plug it with a dart, and they would tag it. And they would follow its migration and its mating patterns, and it would study it. The reason that we cannot possibly believe this would happen to us is because we are the center of our own universe. Our egos prevent us from ever believing that something is greater than we are. It's okay to theorize about God and that sort of thing because it's way out there and it's ethereal. But this would be a flesh and blood visitor here, right. here in my space. It's funny, you know, I often laugh at my friends. It's terrible terrible to laugh at this is gallows humor but you see individuals talk about who have been victims of of crime and they, invariably they say the same thing i never thought it could happen to me okay that's ego talking you're saying to yourself that you are so protective they couldn't happen to you so here's the thing this happens today it's not science fiction we do it we do it how can it not be happening to us as well so there's that agency also, the Earth itself, as I said, it's 4.5 billion years old. We find remnants of advanced technology around the world. 
and it's buried in mounds and under sand and all this other stuff. You know, today, there's a lot of talk about all of this upset in Ukraine, right? And, you know, all of the governments of the world have contingency plans and continuity of government. And you know what they do? This is not science fiction, folks. They have underground bunkers. They have bunkers mm-hmm. underneath their office buildings and they have tunnels and, and bomb shelters and because they have to, because they have to still run the country. Okay. So look, if there was a nuclear bomb that went off somewhere, our guys would go underground. And of course, you and I are not on that list, but they'd right. have the best scientists and, and, and whatever. So imagine, if you will, some cataclysm. And we know from the fossil record, there have been several. And there was an intelligent, we were that, we were that group. We were that intelligence. What would happen? We would go underground. We would go under the mountains. We would go underneath mountains. We would build bunkers. And we'd stay there. And maybe the earth would not be habitable for a while. But guess what? Our tech wouldn't stop right there. We have the smartest right. people in the world. We would continue to advance and advance and advance. And by the time we finally came out, holy crap, look at that. That's a god. That's an alien. There's some of that element that is happening. There are older civilizations here. But once again, we can't recognize it because we, in fact, are the biggest and the baddest. And our egos will prevent us from believing it. And then finally, and the most provocative of them all, and this is what you touched on Mm -hmm. about other realities. You know, I've heard this term bandied about ultra-terrestrial. It's just a repackaging of an old concept. From the beginning of time, something outside our purview, outside our dimension, has somehow pushed itself into our reality through either tech or consciousness tools, interacted with our species, and then popped out without any trace. And we have called them gods and angels and demons and jinn since the beginning of time. What we lack is a cohesive understanding that this phenomenon is part of a huge matrix of phenomena that need to be studied holistically. They're not separate disciplines. What we have done, once again, per our ego, is we want to put them in boxes so we can identify it because if we can name it, we can control it. And this is a problem for us. What we're discovering now through our quantum physics theories is everything is connected, the entanglement experiments and this sort of thing, where everything is connected. It's all a pattern of of this material and this intelligence and this information. And so I tell you this. I tell you that long narrative to say this. Why and what for? We have got to a place where our actions have somehow interacted with other realms, either off-planet, mentally, psychically, energetically, our tech. We have scalar weapons now. We have nuclear weapons. We are somehow interacting, and we got the attention of something else. Now, some of these intelligences, some of these entities have known about us for a long, long time and part of our development. And they've been Mm -hmm. here, but there are other ones. And this is why 
this is why we have such a hard time because somebody says, oh, oh, those are graves. And that's what it is. And here's my flag. And somebody says, no, 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 this is the praying mantis. No, 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 no. It's all white. And they plant their flag. And we're all fighting amongst ourselves. And I, I, I laugh so, uh, so hardly because it's so present in our culture. We want to be right. And we don't give a damn about being correct. And my example, if you've heard me before I say this, just write on Twitter, happy Wednesday. You'll get a thousand people who will say to you, what the hell do you have against Tuesday? And another thousand yeah. people will say that you're a Thursday denier. What are you talking? And this is so inane, so mm -hmm. innocuous, but people want to fight. So think about the real, true, important questions. Oh, hell, something so direct can be convoluted through our egos. This is almost an impossible thing. And so this is why disclosure and the whys will never come through a governmental agency. It will have to sure. be individual to individual, individual, because it will be the experience. And this is really what we're talking about, the plan, this sort of thing. Yeah, this let's, is, let's, this save, is, let's save that for yeah, the next episode. Yeah, yeah, this is really what we're touching on. Whitley Strieber says in the preamble to the film, this is not communication. This is communion. communion. And communion itself is a communication. It's a resonance. It, it's you and I are completely together. You know, and, and we talk about man and a wife, become one flesh, that sort of idea, one corporate body that works in unison. We are at that precipice where we must grow up. And growing up, just as a child, and this is so funny because we're adults and we're arrogant, we have forgotten how difficult adolescence was. You go through that ugly stage, you bang your head, you sprain your ankle, you make all the wrong overtures to all the wrong people, you say it wrong, I didn't know that was wrong, I said the wrong thing. We are there as a species, and this is why it's time for us to grow up. So one thing that I think is going through all the different agencies that you mentioned, it could also alternatively be all of the above. Agreed. Agreed. Right. And I and I think people are so concerned about, like you said, either being right or also being fooled. Mm -hmm. And they're both tied to the point that you made about ego. Mm -hmm. It's all about ego. And I think I want to know the truth. Yes. I'm willing to be fooled, but the way that I think people have to approach it is just have open minds. You don't have to fully accept everyone's story, but sometimes you'll start to see patterns yeah. and well, those patterns I, correlate. Yeah. I'm sorry. Absolutely. I'm sorry. To, I'm sorry to interrupt you, brother, but let me share with you. This is where, people have the shutoff valve in their mind. What they think is, is that they can intellectualize this. And this is why they constantly believe that this disclosure is going to come through scientists or, some, or something they can read in the Wall Street Journal or in Scientific American. It's not. This is something that you must, on a very visceral level, experience. And this is the chasm in the middle of this room. 
The first step is understanding that I am not the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. The second step is I'm not alone in here. The third is I am going to move forward and experience it myself. That is why the disclosure is individual. Because guess what? If you had the exact experience that I had, we could speak about the texture of those stalactites. We could talk about it. I have a lot of women in my life, and I'm always fascinated by the miracle of childbirth. One of the things I say is, I'm talking to a lady, you can tell me all about childbirth. And I can go through all the classes, and I can really wrap my mind around the Lamas, and I can understand all the biology, but there is absolutely no way that I am going to understand, not understand, but understand what it is to carry a living being for nine months to term. And then what it is for my body to go through this total metamorphosis and then issue forth life. What? What are you talking? What are you? What? Okay. This is the same sort of thing. It's on par with that. You were in the military. You could tell somebody all about boot camp. But if somebody didn't stand on those yellow footprints, they don't know what you're talking about. If they don't understand what a field day is, they don't, you, they, you could tell them, right? But they're not going to get it. Okay, that's my point, that it is experiential. It is very personal. And because it is that way, it is also collective. You had mentioned the studies about uh, a gentleman that you had spoken to or you wanted to interview about the monkeys on another island and how these things are connected. And somehow there's a pattern of information. It becomes easier and easier for us to learn. And yeah, that's Sheldrake and that's amorphic resonances. Th thank you very much. Thank you very much. I knew that you would keep me in the lane. This is a real thing. As you said, there are tangible results. It's proven. It's not woo-woo. It's science. It's science. And so this is what we're going through, but on a quantum level. And what is being done is we are being shaken as a species, as a consciousness, collectively. Let me ask you this question. Do you like liver and onions? No. Okay. Okay. So if I gave you a plate of liver and onions, you would reject it right? You'd reject the smell. Okay. I know some people who absolutely adore liver and onions. Okay. So I would never come to you with liver and onions to try to persuade you to do anything. Would I? No, no but I might go to your neighbor with liver and onions. I might come to you as an angel, or I might come to you as Ultraman, or I might come to you as meatloaf, as opposed to liver and onions, okay? Because what I'm trying to do, the onus of that communication is, of course, on me. I need to communicate, and it can't be a tertiary understanding. It's not like, I'd like another beer, or where's the bathroom, or how do I get on the flight? No, this is, how do I evolve? How do I develop? How do I fundamentally change my paradigm. I know we've kind of scoffed a little bit about this government disclosure, but I think it's done something very fundamental that is 
that really is paradigm shifting in a way. I've said this before. There are really three types of persona in this argument. You've got people on this side who are, I call them shoe watchers. So they look at the ground, they look at their stocks, they look at their calculator, and that's what they know. And that's their world. And they think everybody else who's ever, ever talked about this is a moron or a sci-fi writer, right? Mm -hmm. Then you've got those people who are these pseudo-intellectuals. And I just mean that they what they've done is they take their very expensive education to always theorize, but never put their foot in the pool, if you will. And so they theorize around the campfire, well, you know, the earth is this many years and this and this, and I suppose mathematically, you know, Drake's equation, blah, 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 blah. But what does that really have to do with me or society or you? What they do is they put one foot on this line and one foot on this side of the line, and they can kind of go on hedge. both sides of the fence. Yeah, they hedge that bet. And then you've got people like myself who have had this incredible situation, or you, who are saying, wait a minute, there's, there's a preponderance of evidence here. There's something interesting here. We ought to, okay, at, at least admit we ought to look at this. We ought to study yeah. this. Okay. Huh. Okay. But to the first two people, you're as crazy as I am for even wasting your time because it doesn't have anything to do with us. So now this disclosure, the soft disclosure, this silly disclosure, this faint at disclosure, it does something fundamental to each of these people. Those shoe watchers, they're looking at the ground and all of a sudden it comes on the cover of the New York Times, an authority that they can trust and feel is fully ensconced in the 3D paradigm. And they say, what the hell is this? And I want what are they looking at? And for the first time in their lives, the very first time, they look up. But the devil's in the details because the nuances are so important. They look up just not as an observer. They look for the first time with expectation. Because the authorities in their mind, in their heart, in their lives have given them permission now to see something. So now, even though they might have seen something in the past, and just discounted because it was not it was a null set. It had nothing to do with me, and it was not they, they, obviously there was a fly or something in my eye, whatever. But now they look with expectations, and not only that, the cherry on that Sunday is they look with a sense of duty because their authorities have said, "Now we have a mechanism for that reporting, and now it's legitimate." These hundred years, the bells were idiots, but now we have the new and improved Cheerios, and you can have a bowl. So these guys, now they do that. And take a look at the theorizers with the patches on the elbows and the tweed jacket from Yale and Gabriel. These cats now say, what, 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 what do you mean? They're using our tax money to study. What, what are they looking? And for the very first time, they go through the same sequence of events. And now they have the permission. And now they can discuss it over cocktail parties. and not feel like the odd men. In fact, now they might be cutting edge. They might be, yes, it used to be fringe, but now it's cutting edge, my friend. Oh, oh, I love it, the semantics, because now it's legitimate. You're a bunch of morons. And then me, I sit at the end of the call to Seco. Well, welcome to the party, fellas. And that actually is a perfect segue to the plan. One last thing I wanted to just throw out there. Have you read the disclosure report, the one that they put out earlier no, this week? No, I've seen some snippets. First of all, there's nothing in it. But the only thing that's in it that's slightly amusing is they start classifying incidents. They'll put, you know, there's 114 or whatever the number was. 
And there's one that says there are X number of incidents that are balloon or balloon-like entities. <laughs> yes. Yes, they're balloon-like. What the hell does that mean, right? That's the wrong word. Overweight entities. There are just overweight entities. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, we'll just end with that. But thank you very much, my friend. It's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. My pleasure to you. Thank you, sir, for your time. And I can't wait to talk about the plan. Beautiful. Thank you, sir. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.